Hi everyone and welcome back to The Advice Show. I'm Zach, a reporter at New Model Advisor, and today we're talking about acquisitions, how they work, and what stops a deal going over the line. Joining me today is Dominic Rose, CEO at MKC Wealth. Dom, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. You're welcome, Zach. Thanks for having me. Um, now, Dom, you've acquired, you know, over 100 firms, um, mm. leading acquisitions at Quilter, Bell Penny, and Towergate Financial. You know, in all that experience, what were the most common reasons deals fell through? Talk us through your frustrations. <laughs> the frustrations. Well, I think if we talk about once a deal's been agreed, um, yeah, some of the most common reasons why they fall over it's usually if something comes to light during the post during the DD phase. So if something comes to light that either party wasn't aware of, so what may, what that means is it's absolutely critical to be really transparent upfront before a deal is agreed as to how it's going to work, what's going on in your business if you're the business owner who's looking to sell, or if you're the acquiring party, what are you going to do with the business post deal? How is it all going to be integrated, for example? So it's where if there's a surprise during the process, this is one of those situations where nobody likes surprises, right? So uh, far better to make sure that everybody's completely upfront and transparent because uh, otherwise there's a loss of trust. And really the whole process is built on trust. Um, they also can fall over if one side tries to change a deal. So actually if, if somebody tries to change a deal term or, or some aspect of the transaction changes, if it moves away from the fundamental principles that were agreed at the start, Again, trust falls over, and therefore a deal falls over. Uh, one of the other sort of common reasons are something called deal fatigue, okay? which yeah, just without you know, that sort of headline, it's basically everyone gets bored. Right? So if it, if it takes too long, it drags on, um, and everyone sort of just gets weary of it, and then they just drift away, and they, and they lose the appetite to do it. So deal fatigue is a real issue, and that kills them. Um, one of the perhaps more practical tips I can give is if a business owner appoints a lawyer who's got no experience in financial services. Oh, really? That's interesting. Incredibly painful. Um, and that's because of the many frustrating nuances around our sector. And you end up spending lots of time with a lawyer who doesn't understand the sector, trying to explain all of the nuances of the sector. And it's a waste of time, it's a waste of money. They try and implement things into a, into a transaction agreement uh, that's not really required or relevant for the sector. So one of the strongest tips I would give to anybody who's looking at you know, selling their business is to, if you do, once you've agreed a deal, appoint a lawyer who's got financial services experience. Uh, fundamentally, sorry, Zach. Uh, no, I was just going to say, I imagine that's quite a roadblock um, because, you know, a lot of the time it's just spent educating um, a lawyer, as it were. It's quite, that's interesting. It's quite a surprising thing I hadn't considered before. Yeah. And also because lawyers approach these things with a healthy skepticism, um, yeah, so actually where you're, trying to reassure them actually this is fairly normal for this kind of a transaction a lawyer who's advising a business owner uh, will take will approach that with skepticism and may not believe it and try and focus on points that don't need to be focused on and that's another really important point actually is that as part of the process you've got the principals who've agreed to do something and they know what the original premise of a deal is and what they're both trying to achieve um, that can get lost a bit in the process when you get various people in, various third parties doing due diligence and putting their two cents in. The skeptic might say some of them are just trying to earn their fees. Um, yeah, I think that's not always the case, but sometimes there might be uh, points where people are trying to point score and win something on behalf of either the buyer or the seller that actually neither party really care about. Right? And I suppose that's all that does, is, yeah, and I suppose all that does is contribute to deal fatigue, right? Yeah, yeah, it does. But also, yeah, it does. But it also sows this sort of seed of, of doubt 
and, and people start arguing over points that really don't matter, uh, actually. So which is what really important is that the two principals who are leading the transaction from the buyer and the seller's perspective know what they're trying to achieve, have to rein in the respective advisors on each side, the DD people, make sure that you haven't got people asking stupid questions that no one really cares about, because um, otherwise it just winds everybody up. And, you know, all deals are different, but um, on generally speaking, you know, those points that don't matter that um, it can be a danger to focus on. Can you give an insight into your experience of, of those those things that, that maybe um, too much importance is given to and it just slows a deal up? Yeah, there'll be points that will come out of due diligence typically. So, you know, if you're doing financial DD, for example, and some uh, and the financial DD partner wants to go down the rabbit hole of whether VAT is applicable on advice charges, for example, uh, and then you start arguing back and forth as to whether that applies on a transaction in respect of the purchase of assets or not. And, uh, and really, everybody who's been in the sector for long enough knows the rules around this. They know what 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 applies and what doesn't. And you just end up going down a rabbit hole um, yeah. and wasting money. And it requires both sides to sort of tell both advisors actually and say, look, guys. We don't care about this. Okay, this is okay. We know what we're doing here. Um, just crack on and, and please deliver the deal that we've both agreed between us. So there's quite a lot of management of people involved to try and get the deals over the line. But fundamentally, they fall over in the main where there's a loss of trust. Okay, And if something comes to light that the other side doesn't wasn't aware of, uh, or if somebody tries to change something, because the whole process is built on trust. Yeah, um, and I suppose it's trying to just getting your ducks in a row before the acquisition process even begins, right? Um, in that yeah. in that spirit, how well generally do you think that IFAs are in terms of their preparation for the acquisition process? Could it be better, and what do they sort of what do they often uh, miss out on? Yeah, it, it actually this is a really unhelpful answer, but it depends entirely on how they're being advised. So actually some people who will appoint somebody to help them and guide them through the process will spend a lot of time with the business owner making sure they're actually ready. Um, now ready is it's in two areas really. It's, it's not just making sure that you've got all of the data and the information on your business because actually if you don't have all of that really boring MI stuff, um, actually it creates a loss of confidence. Right. But there's the other element is whether a business owner is emotionally ready. Now, this is something that people often underestimate the significance of, and I have a tendency to labor the point with people, and it comes across like I'm trying to put people off doing a deal, which is not the case. I'm actually just trying to get people to realize that if you're the entrepreneurial business owner and you've been running a business for years, and you've built a business up over 20, 30 years, um, and actually you're, you've been attracted by the prospect of doing a deal with somebody, it's really important to understand that there is going to be a loss of control typically for that individual post deal. And for an entrepreneurial business owner, that can be really difficult. So actually they could be uh, blinded to the wrong word, but distracted by you know, realizing the capital for what they've built and all of their hard work, which is right. Uh, but then it's the practical realities of what life is like post deal uh, that is really important for them to consider. And for some people that moving into an environment where they no longer can, make a decision in the morning and see it implemented by lunch, right? Don't underestimate the significance of that of that impact. And I suppose it's difficult for the acquirer, right? Because a lot of times you want that experience in the room post-deal for maybe a couple of years, but you don't necessarily want, obviously, them running the ship as they used to. Yeah, it's uh, and it comes on to the integrate. It comes on to an integration point, right? As to how you're going to integrate, uh, and it's just, but I think it's fine and it works really well as long as everybody's really upfront from the outset where these things don't is if actually somebody's been sold a dream 
right? So if you're a business owner um, and you've met somebody who's selling you a dream, you respect, look, here's a big check. Don't worry, nothing's going to change. You're still going to be able to carry on doing everything like you were doing before. That's just not, it's just not true. Uh, in, in the vast majority of cases, that's just not true. Things will change. And it will depend on the extent of an integration as to you know, the operation integration, the proposition integration, the way in which the team are integrated. Um, but there will be change. Um, and one of those big changes is that loss of control point for a business owner as well. So it, they work well as long as everybody's completely up front, right at the start of the process. And say, right, I really labor the point. What is life going to be like on a day-to-day? Once I've gone through the excitement phase and I've had I've had some money, uh, and the team have all got, got joined uh, another firm and they're all energet- energized about it. That can wane as the practical realities of what day to day life is like in a different environment. So it's really yeah. important that everybody's clear on what that is right from the outset. Yeah, and just um, getting into the due diligence point again, um, just to clear that up. Um, I wondered what your thoughts were on um, an increasing regulatory climate. Um, you know, I'm thinking particularly about um, all the British steel DB transfer history we've seen in the last few years and how that's affected acquisition processes. Do you think acquirers or firms getting more, are more aware of these things and look out for them more? I'm talking, I'm thinking particularly, um, for example, you know, um, uh, Quilter CEO Paul Feeney at the time uh, told us that um, Quilter had failed on its due diligence uh, in the Lighthouse deal, for example. And I wondered if, if sort of industry moves like that had affected things and the way that acquisitions get passed. Yeah, I, I think people have certainly tightened up their due diligence. Um, and if they haven't, they certainly should. But yeah, people have tightened up their due diligence process. But actually what we find, what I'm seeing quite a lot of now is where there is DB exposure, irrespective of where it's British Steel or not, um, people are just saying, actually, you know, we don't want any DB exposure at all. So p- quite often people are discounting buying businesses because there is a past DB exposure. Now, that's a bit of a crude, um, a, a crude assessment because actually the reality is it's around how exposed is a firm. So yeah. some buyers will say, "Right, you've done some DBs. No, we won't. We won't do a deal with you." Others will say, "Okay, you've done some, but it's a, it's a fairly small number. We'll, we'll do a lot of due diligence on them. They'll probably check every single file uh, in respect to DB advice. Right. Uh, and the outcome is likely to be that, which is always the way." We think the advice is probably all right, but actually there are gaps in your files that you're going to have to spend time filling in over a period of time post-completion or sometimes pre-completion. Um, uh, or there could be a situation where people, there'll be some firms who've got more of a risk appetite. They're more willing to accept the risk around DBs, but there's very few of those. Um, and what we do find is that people tend to actually structure transactions differently to compensate for the risk. So where firms have got a lot of significant DB exposure, uh, people would tend not to want to buy the share capital in that business. They would only buy the assets from that business. And then they'd require a business owner to make sure that they've got full uh, PI insurance covering those past liabilities. And maybe you need to leave some of the capital in the business to help cover any potential claims that may arise. Yeah. And um, also that you know speaks to the business model of the firm acquiring and what they're willing to, what kind of deal they want to do. Um, I wondered if you could talk us through um, some different acquisition models. You know, we often see acquirers um, either simply trying to scale up, aggregating as many assets as possible, or the sort of more selective buy and build approach. Could you walk us through how these both work um, and the sort of differing objectives of both? Yeah, um, and integration or lack of integration is going to be one of the key points here. So um, I think there are a number of people out there who are, uh, acquiring as much as possible 
um, but actually it becomes sort of a loose affiliation of IFA businesses. And what they're relying on in their model is that they're relying on a multiple arbitrage. Okay, so what I mean by that is actually they're relying on the price they pay for a business for a smaller firm being lower than the multiple valuation of a larger business. Right. So basically they're not really doing any integration. They're not necessarily adding any specific value. There will be varying degrees. Some will have layers of integration, but at one end of the spectrum, it will simply be a multiple arbitrage play where they're buying at one multiple. They think the combined value of the broader group is worth a different multiple. Right? And that's how they generate their return. And this is a really important point for everybody to think about when they're considering selling their business. How is the buyer generating their return here? Are all of our interests aligned? Okay, um, so that's just one of the, so that's one model. Now, at the other end of the spectrum, you will have firms who it's a it's a one hundred percent integration. Right, so they will acquire one hundred percent integration uh, right sort of from completion, uh, and the, every, everything becomes the acquiring firm. Okay, and they're not reliant on that sort of multiple arbitrage opportunity, but they're aligning, they're bringing everybody in to follow a consistent process. Now. That's certainly my preferred approach, and it's what we do, but we're not acquiring in any sort of great volume. Uh, and to build on your point, you've got those that are doing massive volumes of transactions. Uh, I think that exposes quite a lot of risk of those firms potentially falling over because you just you, you can't digest it. Right? Yeah. Um, and you can't then, even if you're not really integrating from a proposition perspective or a brand perspective even, they might be integrating various sort of central functions like finance, HR, compliance. Uh, but actually the volume of that means that some of these firms can fall over. And it, it's something I'm really concerned about in the industry generally because people who built up businesses over 20, 30 years, and this is their life's work, they're relying on, on the fact that actually they're going to get their payments. The clients are going to be happy and it's all going to work. So it's such an important part of a process to make sure it's being done right on the integration. Uh, and if the plan is, there is no integration if that's what's been sold to a business owner i'd be skeptical about it personally on the basis that at some point somebody's going to want to look at it and say where does where's the value here there should be more value in terms of right more than just a multiple arbitrage opportunity does that make sense Zach, or not? no it does no it absolutely does and i and i wanted to um expand on that point of integration a little bit um you know um I wondered if you think a lack of integration also poses a problem uh, with consumer duty, bringing that in for a moment, um, you know, building up businesses with different fee models, different IT systems, lots of investment propositions. I wonder if the regulator would point at that all and say, how does it all offer fair value? Yeah, I, I think absolutely. Consumer duty does shine a light on the underlying issue, right? So uh, I think consumer duty is, is, is really important. I mean, but in terms of when these firms are acquiring, if you're not aligning a fee model, and, and the availability of data is crucial as part of consumer duty. So in order to test how you're performing against each of the outcomes, you need to have the data. And actually, if you're not then integrating all of the firms and all the businesses into one consistent area for data, how, you, how can you actually report against the consumer duty outcomes? So you've got that element in terms of reporting against it. But then you've got yeah. a more important element, which is if I'm a client in firm X that's under the umbrella of an acquirer, uh, but then I go and see another advisor who's come joined from another firm and I get a similar service, but I'm a charge a different fee. Mm. And that's the fundamental issue. And that's what needs to be addressed as part of the integration of acquired firms is how do, is there an alignment of service propositions? Is there an, if the fees are increasing, is there an enhancement in the service that clients are going to be receiving? And is it consistent across the firm? 
And I think that's one of the big problems that firms who are not integrating will face. Yeah, and on that point of um, consumer duty as well, um, I wondered your thoughts on how, if at all, it'll change the acquisition process. I mean, you know, we've already seen some firms say that, for example, uh, the greater focus on value for fees means that their entire business model might have to change. Um, I wondered what you thought um, the process um, of acquisition, how that process, sorry, will be changed. Yeah, it, it depends on, frankly, how firms, how what firms' existing process is. Um, quite a few years ago now, quite early on, you know, when you first do the, sort of the deals, you make mistakes and, um, and, you, and you get it wrong and then you learn. I mean, if you're not learning, then you're definitely doing something wrong. Yeah. Um, but you know, one of the things that we did and what I've done over the years is we do a really clear assessment of the client's current service and, pro- service and advice proposition and investment proposition versus ours. And how does the segmentation of the existing clients work versus ours? I, what's going to be the differential for the clients coming through that process? But this is something that you don't do post-acquisition. This is done actually before you're agreeing a deal. So, okay, so before you even enter into a heads of terms, it's going to be really clear how do the clients that are going to be joining this business, how do, how's the service going to be impacted? How does it line up? And is there going to be a benefit to the clients arising from it? Because ultimately, if there isn't a benefit from the client arising from the transaction, then it's not going to work. Okay. Yeah. So, actually, yeah, because it's so from your to actually answer your question, Zach, rather than just sort of ramble, um, the it needs to be dealt with right before a deal is agreed with somebody as to absolute clarity uh, as to how it will all align in terms of service, advice, and investment propositions. And if they don't align, a deal shouldn't be done. Yeah, and I wondered if you felt for a greater focus. Um, sort of on um, integration from the regulator will mean that we'll see possibly a change in some acquisition, some uh, deal prices being made, uh, how a valuation of a firm might be affected by the fact that actually now there's a lot more pressure on us to integrate you quicker. Um, so I'm not sure whether that will have much of an impact on price. Uh, I, I think the interest rate, the interest rate environment, and the, and the increased cost of debt for for buyers who are buying in bulk and are debt funded, that I believe has in fact impacted price. So valuations um, have come off the levels that they were a little bit last year. Actually, so they've yeah. reduced a bit. Um, I think there will be, uh, I think there will be a requirement for people to change some of their approaches, or at least be clearer on their approaches for integration. How are they going to uh, align businesses in under one model? Yeah, that makes sense. And, you know, lastly, I just wanted to talk a little bit about private equity. Um, mm. You know, MKC is backed by Cabo Square Capital as well. I, I wanted to ask you how private equity houses are different, how they can differ in terms of strategy um, and, you know, objectives. Yeah. Um, so it's, and actually it's interesting, when we were out there, when we were raising the money for this business, uh, I was quite clear that um, we have a very cautious growth plan uh, because I wanted us to make sure that we're, my fear was that growth um, at any cost is at the expense of client service, i.e. if you grow too fast, you're going to impact your client service yeah. and therefore any growth is pointless, really, if you're not delivering for the clients that you're actually servicing. Um, so finding a backer that understood that um, was was harder, actually, because there are quite a few PE firms out there who have got quite had quite a lot of capital they wanted to deploy uh, and they wanted to go big and fast and then sell the business on. Uh, but some of these are the ones who I think are just more interested in the multiple arbitrage opportunity rather than actually building a yeah. business for the longer term. So there's certainly some short-term, uh, shorter-term investment horizons out there. 
but less so perhaps I think now than they used to be. I think some people are seeing examples of uh, people who've grown very quickly, failed to integrate or integrated poorly, and the impact that's actually had on the value of the business as a whole. So that's given people pause, uh, cause for pausing. How long are those, generally, are those shorter term horizons? Would it be sort of three to five years? Uh... Yeah, that's been a typical horizon. Um, yeah, but yeah, some, some firms, obviously, some firms invest for longer. Uh, you know, Cabot Square with us agreed that they would invest. It was a, it was a longer investment horizon than that uh, as a result of the fact we said, look, we want to build something over a longer period where everybody goes home at the end of the day actually proud about the service we've delivered rather than excited about a headline asset number. Um, because I think that's a little bit like vanity. Um, rather than actually how client, how happy your clients are, how, how each of the transactions work. So, yeah, there's definitely differing time horizons. Uh, but I do think that there's a bit of a misconception in the industry that actually all these private equity guys, are there's sort of some aggressive P people just looking for a short-term return. And actually what I've just been articulating probably didn't help. But actually, I think it's really good for the sector. The amount of investment that's coming into the sector, I think, is really good for it. Because actually what it's doing is it's, driving um, innovation it's driving competition it's driving us to look at okay actually let's differentiate ourselves based on our service uh, that we're delivering to clients so i think that's a real positive um, and there's lots of different firms out there who are growing through acquisition right? and there's lots of lots of different models whether some you know face-to-face the digital or the hybrid the way in which they're integrating so if you look at it as a matrix of different models there's going to be a type of model that's going to suit most of your listeners, right? There will be the right kind of uh, home for them uh, if we think about the acquisitions process and that dating stage, right, and finding the right partner to deal with. There will be that right partner. Um, but I think actually we shouldn't, people should be, shouldn't be so quick to bash private equity investment in the sector when actually I do think in the longer term it's going to have a really positive impact on our industry, um, especially as there's learning from failed acquisition models right and when people take that learning uh, albeit that's painful learning but when people take that on board that will then help focus and channel the capital in the right way that will help the end client um as part of the process yeah thank you so much Dom. that's a great answer and lastly i would like to ask you know if you were a small ifa um looking to be acquired um whether you're retiring or whatever what would you do in your business to make yourself more attractive for acquisitions Hmm. Um, so I would not do anything racy, right? So this is really this is going to be a really boring answer, I'm afraid, a really boring answer. But the, the reality is, and depending on the sort of type of clients that you're looking after, if we remember that actually the type of clients that we look after, these are, I'd say, sort of inverted commas, normal people whom we're responsible for looking after their life savings. Okay? So people who've built up their wealth over many years and they're entrusting us to look after it, right? So that's actually the fundamental job that we and is to give them good advice and, and to get, make sure that they, they trust us. Um, but I, so if you're then as a business owner, think, oh, you know what, actually, I'm going to go into some racy investment over here to try and generate a couple of extra percent return, or I'm going to do anything slightly off piece for a short-term gain, actually, that's going to put off any kind of buy, right? Because, because actually what we like is um, things that are vanilla. We can see that clients have been well looked after. We can see that there could be an enhancement in the service as a result of a transaction. Uh, what we don't like is lots of esoteric and off-piste stuff um, that basically we wouldn't then be able to replicate, but also might end up creating regulatory risk as well. So there's that element, which is keep it simple um, and try not to do anything racy. The other uh, even more boring part is 
make sure that you've got the relevant data uh, yeah. within the business so you actually under, you've got all of the information underneath it all uh, because otherwise that's quite a painful process but i'd say probably the biggest point sort of brings us full circle to what i said at the start which is um business owners need to be emotionally ready okay so actually when i've seen transactions fail it's when people think they're ready to do a deal uh, and they've been excited about a capital event the harsh re- and sometimes it is harsh reality of life post deal uh, and that loss of control yeah actually that makes them realize oh god you know what i wasn't really ready okay and then they start then things start to fall apart afterwards so it's really important that actually you get your business in order in terms of data and all this sort of stuff but actually make sure that you really are ready to make that decision um and there's no rushing into these things is, is often a mistake Tom, thank you so much. That seems like a great note to end on. Um, thank you so much for a fascinating conversation. Yeah, thank you, Zach. Anytime. Uh, you've been listening to The Advice Show with myself and guest Dominic Rose, CEO at NKC Wealth. For any questions, please feel free to tweet us at New Model Advisor or email us at nmateam at citywire.co.uk. Thank you so much for listening and we'll see you next week.